Man, I love that song. Before we continue, I did have one um, other announcement. We're actually going to be praying. Um, our sister Alexis Kravitz and uh, her husband Tim, they are in the hospital right now. She is in labor, so no news yet. But um, we're just going to take a second. I'm going to pray for the sermon and also going to take some time just to pray for that, you know, what's going on over there. I know it's a, they are having a good old time right now. And so we're just going to pray that God is with her and with Tim as he leads her through this process. So please, uh, you know, uh, let's pray right now. God, um, you know, the miracle of birth is a beautiful thing. And Lord... Um, Childbearing is a beautiful thing, but God, we know that it is a painful process. Lord, I pray right now that you just uh, give Alexis the strength, um, you know, as she she goes through this process. And uh, Lord, uh, I pray that you give um, Tim just the wherewithal to be there for his wife, to serve his wife, to meet her needs as she goes through this process, God. And I, you know, I just pray that you deliver a healthy baby girl. Um, this morning or, or whenever, whatever your plan is, if it's today, if it's tomorrow, God, but we know that your plan is perfect, that you're with the doctors in this process, God. And uh, it's such a, such a beautiful thing what's going on, and we can't wait to, to meet our, our, our new member of the church family. And um, Lord, also, as we look at your word this morning, as I'm preaching this morning, Lord, I pray that it's your words that come out, not my own. Um, be with us this morning. Humble our hearts. Help, us, help our hearts to be softened to your word. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, last week I, I started off, a, you know, like a little two part thing I wanted to share of a, did he really say that? So this is did he really say that part two? And we, we looked at a couple of shocking st- statements that Jesus made. And this week we're going to do uh, we're going to take a look at a couple more. So if you can turn over to Luke chapter 18, we're just going to go right into it. Luke 18, verse 9, it says, always, you know, when you, when you, when you read these words, we always got to see, like, who's he talking to? Jesus starts off, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up. He prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers or evildoers or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's a shocking statement. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, you got this story of two guys going to the temple to pray. And the first guy, you know, like, I can't help but relate to the first guy in my prayer life sometimes. God, thank you so much for all that you've done in my life. And, 
God, you know, I've done this and I've done that and I'm healthy and I've got a great young boy and I'm, I'm a minister. And, you know, you start throwing out your to do list. You start start throwing out your accomplishments and stuff like that. You know, I can't help but relate to this guy a little bit. Then you have the other guy. Who wouldn't even look up to heaven. He's on his knees. And he's like, God, just have mercy on me, a sinner. That was his prayer. Sincere and short, and he meant it. You know, and then Jesus goes on to tell us this statement, and and I think it's shocking simply because it's just not how the world works, the world that we live in. Humility can be seen as weakness in some circles. But Jesus says, those who humble themselves will actually be exalted. They will be lifted up. I want to ask you this morning, when is the last time you humbled yourself? I didn't ask you when's the last time you got humbled. That seems to happen to us. But when is the last time you actually took it upon yourself to be humble? You know, when we humble ourselves, it says, God lifts us up. You know, I think some of us were too busy trying to lift ourselves up. And I don't know if you've ever tried to to lift yourself up or if you've ever been around someone that's lifting themselves up. That's a lot of heavy lifting. You know what I mean? You you start going through your accomplishments and pretty soon people kind of get tired of it. You ever been around a one-upper? You guys know what that person is? You tell a story and then they tell a better story. The college, the high school and the college students. I mean, I see this all the time, you know, reaching out on campus and I tell somebody a story and they're like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, OK, awesome, man. You are the man. Sometimes we are too busy lifting ourselves up. Too busy shading the truth, not telling the bad news along with the good news. Sometimes we're afraid to say we're not doing that well. Or we're fearful to admit a weakness or even fearful to look for one. Bible says, humble yourself and God will do the heavy lifting. We want God doing the heavy lifting. Amen. You know, so how can we show humility? I got like a couple little practicals on how can we show humility? The first one is don't hide your flaws. You know, sometimes uh, I I think we we fall into this category of what I like to call like Christmas letter Christianity. Anybody here thinking about their Christmas cards that they got to make in a couple months? There's a couple of hands that went up. You know, I know we're like we're not even at, you know, Halloween yet or Thanksgiving yet. But eventually you're going to start thinking about your Christmas cards. You know, and and, and Christmas cards, they're kind of funny because, because it just tells you the good news. That's all it says. And we love good news, right? Amen for good news. We need good news. We need encouragement. But, uh, you know, that's what happens with a Christmas card. You know, it's like, you know, you get the Christmas card or you get the Christmas letter. That's what my family used to send out to the family that, that, that was out of town. And it would kind of talk about just our accomplishments. And you'd be like, oh, Johnny, he got some straight A's this year. Susie finally made varsity. 
Alex, he went into the ministry, and Joanna, she's, she's serving in Kenya right now. Our family is doing amazing. Nobody gets a Christmas card that, that says, like, well, Johnny, uh, he's in jail again. <laughs> Susie, she moved in with that guy that we all hate. Um, and, and she knows it, but she moved in with him anyway. Uh, Dad, he's about to lose his job. He's one, he's one uh, he, he's one bad decision away from losing his job, and I gained, uh, over the last year, I've gained 40 pounds. Merry Christmas. I mean, none of us do that, but, you know, early on as a Christian, I thought I always had to have it together. And I don't know if you relate to that, but I thought, I thought when I come to church... I need to put the smile on my face and I need to look like I'm put together. I'm a manager at AT AT&T. I'm making good money. I got a a, a car that, well, my car had issues. We're not going to talk about that, but (laughs) I've got a car. And, and, you know, and I I thought I had to put, had to have it all put together. The guys that lived with me could, could testify to the same. That I thought I couldn't come in and, and show weakness. I couldn't come in and tell somebody about my flaws. Now, when we come into church, when we come into a church family, we need to be giving. But we don't need to hide our flaws. Just, we just need to, sometimes we need to say it like it is. How's it going? You know what? I need your prayers right now. It's not going that well. Don't hide your flaws. We're going to love you. We're Christians. We have to. It's just part of the Christian life. We love everybody. We're all messed up anyways. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, I thought that I had to be flawless when I came in. But then you read scriptures where Jesus talks about, I came for the sick. You know, too many of us are scared of hiding, too scared to reveal our flaws. It takes humility to show your flaws. Uh, Another practical on how to be humble is seek advice. You know, it's one of the most humbling things in the world just to seek advice. And I think it's an area that, that I know myself I've been challenged in. I've had a challenge in my discipleship and just in my life just to just to be an advice seeker. You know, the Proverbs, it actually says that we need to seek advice, that we need to listen to the advice, and we also need to take advice. You know, a lot of times we seek the advice just so nobody can say, did you get advice? And you're like, well, yeah, I did. I don't plan on taking the advice, but I did seek the advice. You know, we need to be advice seekers as well as advice takers. You know, we need to get good at formulating statements with question marks at the end of them. You know, sometimes we like to come in and tell instead of ask. You know, and when you show up to church, when you show up to, uh, you know, someone that you respect spiritually, show up and say, hey, you know, what? like, what do you think about this situation? What do you think about how I'm doing in my parenting? What do you think about how I'm doing at school? How do you see me with my classmates? How do you think that I'm doing at work? 
You know, we need to be advice seekers, but not only seekers, but also advice takers. You know, that's another way that we can show our humility. Another one is don't take all the credit. You know, a lot of times when good things happen, we like to take the credit. Uh, I've been listening to I love listening to sports radio. Um, And, you know, it's funny because growing up, I hated sports radio. I'd be like, Dad, can we not listen to that? Can we listen to I don't like the talk radio. I want to listen to music. Now I like the talk radio and I'm sure my son is going to say the same thing to me. And. There's something going on for anybody. How many people here know who know who Vince Scully is? Okay, good. More than I expected. Okay, Vince Scully has been a baseball broadcaster for 67 years. Most people try to retire by the time they're 67. He's done his job for 67 years. His list of accomplishments is very long. I'm not going to go through them. Um, he is known as the voice of the Dodgers, our local team here. If you want to go to a Dodger game, you have to go on Vince Scully Avenue. So if that tells you about how important he is to the Dodger organization, that should paint a little bit of a picture. He is very important. He has been a part of that organization for, for many, many years. And I've been listening to some of his interviews because he's retiring this year. He's hanging it up this year. He's, he's done at the end of this year. And listening to some of his interviews, there, there's a few things that really stick out to me. One of them, he's an amazing storyteller. If you just like good storytellers, just listen to him. Go look up Vince Scully. But the other thing that really is admirable to me about him is just his humility. And his humility just shines through. He's quoted as saying this. He says, the thing that bothers me when he's talking about his last few days as an announcer. He said, the thing that bothers me really and truly is making it sound like because it's my last year that I'm almost more important than the game of baseball. He said, that scares me to death. I just want to go do the game. I want to have fun, and I want them to eventually say, okay, Scully, that's enough. We'll see you later. You know, he has the humility. Like, he could say, yeah, you know, this is my farewell tour. I'm making it about me. But you know what? In his humility, he's like, you know what? I don't want it to be about me this year. I want it to be about the game. And if you just go listen to some of his interviews, I have been just, I've been amazed at this man's humility. As an 89-year-old man, Saying things like, I'm only great because I got to announce other people doing great things. So I'm really not all that. It takes humility to give credit. You know, how are you when other people do great things? Do you lift them up or do you get competitive? Do you see somebody doing something amazing and, and genuinely feel excited for them. You know, this type of humility, it calls me higher. I think personally, just as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a minister, humility is probably the biggest battle I think I face in my character. In my 
In my character, I do not like to show my weaknesses. In my character, I do not like to let people know that I'm having a tough time. You know what the Bible says? When I am weak, then I am strong. That if I humble myself, God will actually do the heavy lifting for me. You know, men and women, we need to be characterized by our humility. The Bible says, clothe yourselves in humility. You know, clothes are one of the first things you notice about people. Is that one of the first things people notice about you? Is, am I humble? Humble people don't hide their flaws. They seek advice, and they don't take all the credit. They actually try to give credit out. Let's be men and women of humility. The second shocking statement that Jesus made is in Matthew chapter 5. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is like, it's, it's a key point in the Bible. It's a key point in Jesus' ministry. And if somebody ever tells you, I love the Sermon on the Mount, man, that is awesome. They probably really haven't read the whole thing or understand the whole thing. Because this is the one that, that gouge your eyes out, give your coat to your neighbors, go the extra mile, do not worry. The, the, the door is narrow. This is that sermon. This sermon is so tough and so hard line by Jesus. I mean, people were like, what do we do with this guy? This was such a hard sermon that Jesus preached. And, and, and the whole Sermon on the Mountain, he is heightening the authority of the scriptures. And he's taking it to another level. It's not just the actions that he's talking about, but he's talking about the heart behind the actions. And I want to look at just one excerpt of it. But um, if you've never really read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, make sure you go back and read it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is good stuff, but it is tough stuff. And it, would challenge, it challenges us to the core every time we read it. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read just verses 27 to 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it is said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Just be honest with the church. The first time I read this scripture, it scared me to death. You know, growing up, you know, I, I lived a pretty good life. Uh, you know, I think I, I tried to be as good of a person as possible. I remember being a junior high, freshman in high school. I'm like, I want to wait till I'm married to have sex. My parents instilled that in me. Senior year came around. I had stopped going to church, really. I was more focused on sports, more focused on girls. And I broke that vow to God. After I broke that vow to God, I just said, well, who cares? I'll just keep breaking that vow to God. And just continue down that path for the next number of years. 
And when I studied the Bible and I read this scripture, when it says, if you just look at a woman with lust, you might as well have committed adultery in your heart. I was floored. I actually was like, I don't know if I can do that. That standard is so high. I don't want to be an adulterer. This was one of the scariest scriptures, I think. It's one of the scariest scriptures to me in the Bible because the standard is so high. It's not just an action that he's talking about, but a heart that he's talking about. You know, being a married man, this scripture scares me. Because I say, I don't want to be an adulterer. I don't want to be that guy. Jesus takes things to another level. I wonder how this audience felt when he said that. He's essentially saying, do not lust after another person. Lust is to commit adultery in your heart. He calls us to consider lust as bad as adultery. What a high standard. For anybody that says, man, I love the Sermon on Mount. Man, this is good stuff. No, this is tough stuff. He calls us to do some heart surgery, to dig deep into our hearts. And, and, and brothers, just to speak to the men for a second, we are visual creatures. I know that. Any item moves. I'm squirrel looking. You know, we, we see things and our eyes go there. But if you see something and your eyes go there and it is something that is going to cause you to lust, you better look away fast. You know, I've heard it said you can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. We are control, complete control of our thoughts. You can't prevent what other people are doing, but you can control what you're thinking. We need to have a very high standard when it comes to what we see. And women, I know the same goes for you. I can't speak to your specific struggles with lust, but I know that women do struggle with it. And women and men, we need to learn how to control that desire. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's taking the standard to another level. And then if you think that he took it to another level here, he's about to go higher in the next verse. This is a shocking statement he says, if your right eye, verse 29, causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, Jesus is not preaching self-mutilation here. But he is painting a picture, a very vivid picture of how seriously he wants us to take sin. He's heightening our awareness to saying that if something is causing you to sin, cut it out. Get rid of it. Distance yourself from it. You know, if the street corner you're passing by is tempting you to do drugs, find another route. That's what Jesus would say. 
If there's a certain movie or TV show that's causing you to struggle with lust, Jesus would say, well, stop watching it. Don't even turn on the TV. You know, if there's certain friends that are making you stumble, find some new friends. You're like, well, Aaron, what do you mean find new friends? Well, Jesus like, cut it out. Get rid of it. It's tough to cut it out. We need to get radical about sin. But you know, why do we have such a hard time quitting sin? I think there's really two reasons. The first reason, we enjoy it. We enjoy sin. Uh, St. Augustine said this. He says, God, make me good, but not yet. That's sometimes our mentality. I want to be good, but not yet. I don't want to get rid of that one thing. God, make me good, but not yet. And I think many of us can, you know, some of us can fall into that category. The other category, and, and this is the one that I fall into, why, why it's such a hard time quitting sin is there's just so much to do. You know, I want to uh, share a story that I read about a guy named Gordon McDonald. Gordon said, Some years ago, when my wife Gail and I bought the old abandoned New Hampshire farm we now call Peace Ledge, we found this site where we wished to build our country home, and it was covered with rocks and boulders. He said, it's going to take a lot of hard work to clear it all out. But the first phase of the clearing process was actually, and surprisingly, easy. The big boulders, they went fast. And then, and then when they were gone, we began to see that there were a lot of smaller rocks that had to go. But when we cleared the side of the boulders and the rocks, we noticed all the stones and pebbles that we, had ne- that we didn't see before says this was much more harder work, more tedious work, but we stuck to it. And there came the day when the soil was ready for planting grass. And I share that story because this is kind of the picture of dealing and and, and quitting sin. This is what it looks like. The first thing that you deal with is, is getting rid of the boulders. I know for myself that the boulders that I had to get rid of, the sinful boulders that I had to get rid of, was things like sexual immorality, just getting drunk all the time, going to wild parties and cussing. Those were like just the obvious sins that I saw in my life. That I'm like, okay, if I want to be a Christian, I need to get rid of these. At the time, it was hard. It was hard work lifting those heavy boulders out of my life. Because they had such a stronghold on my life. But I thought to myself, if I can just get rid of these things, I'll be good. But you know what? I got rid of those boulders. Got rid of some of those rocks. And guess what I started to notice? Pebbles. And this is where I think a lot of us get stuck. There's so many stories out there of people quitting the big sins of dealing with the big boulders in their lives. But then the hard work is getting the pebbles out. You ever had a pebble in your shoe? A rock in your shoe or something? It's annoying. And that's how I feel about 
quitting sin right now. Because the boulders, in the grand scheme of things, they were easy. Man, I've been spending the last eight years trying to work on the pebbles. And I feel like I'm not even close to clearing them out yet. The pebbles are the heart sins. They're the ones, like, dealing with your character. They're, they're dealing with your pride. They're dealing with your laziness, your lack of discipline, your idleness. They're dealing with the bad attitude or the arrogance that you might have. Pebbles can be annoying. And I think so many people stop right here. They do the hard work. They get the boulders out of their life. They say, if I just get this, I'll be good. But you know what? We need to see the work through. Get the boulders out of your life. If that's where you're at, amen. Get some help getting those boulders out of your life. It is heavy lifting. But if you've gotten the boulders out of your life and you've been ignoring the pebbles or the small rocks, I want to challenge you to get back on board and take sin seriously. You know, when I heard this scripture about lust, lust has become like a pebble because it's just annoying. It's like, oh my gosh, I, I want to go, I, you know, I work with the college students and I love going on the college campus and sharing my faith. But during hot weather days, it's hard. Like, man, I, I get all excited. I'm going to go share my faith with people. I'm going to go tell these college students about God. And then you walk in and there's a crowd of, of women that are dressed inappropriately. And it's like, okay. And I'm just here. Come to church. Take this card. My wife's number's on the back. Call her. Ask her how to dress. That's how it is. It's annoying. We need to deal with the pebbles. Because that's when God really starts working with you. Deal with the pebbles in your character. Take sin seriously means dealing with all of it. And the last bold statement that I want to look at is in Luke chapter 4. You know, point number one was humility. The, the point number two was take sin seriously. Point number three, I don't really know what to call it. We're just going to call it Luke 4, verse 16 through 19. But I've been studying this one out, and it is called me higher. And I'll explain it to you in a second. Jesus, in verse 16, went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day, Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. Just stop there for a second. Bible says Jesus went to Nazareth. This isn't a shocking statement to me. This is more a shocking act. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You guys remember that question? Nathaniel asked about Jesus. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It says he went to Nazareth where being brought up and on the Sabbath, Sabbath day went into the synagogue 
as was his custom, and he stood up to read. You know, I was brought up in Georgia. I went to high school and college out there. And let me tell you this, the thought of me going back to my hometown as a preacher gives me the chills. The amount of conversations I would have to have with people that knew me. I lived there my whole life. And all the conversations would have to be like, let me explain. I'm a minister now. I don't do those things that I used to do. I know we did some crazy stuff in high school and in college. The, you know, I'm not going to get into the list of the crazy stuff. I'm not even going to try to reminisce with the crazy stuff. I'm a minister now. Jesus went to his hometown where he was brought up. Now, I know Jesus doesn't have the same path that I have and that some of us have. But there's just something about going home and preaching the gospel message. It just, it calls me higher. When I speak here, I, you know, or when I speak to college students, it, I feel good about it. Because people say, hey, Aaron, awesome message. You guys don't know the old Aaron. And for that, I'm grateful. You know, I have people say, thank you for what you shared. But if I were to go back home and preach some of these messages, I wonder what the response would be like. Are you kidding me? Who let him up there? This is this, that guy. You guys know what I mean? They look back at the stories and like, you're a minister now? Go on, bro. Okay. Not sure I want to come to that church. There'd be a lot of explaining to do. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and he began to preach in the synagogue, as was his custom. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. Now, to me, that's the shocking statement here. Imagine going to your high school reunion or your college reunion or, or going somewhere home. Maybe this is home for you. Imagine going to your classmates and saying this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. This was a shocking statement to these people. You keep on reading. They wanted to kill him. We're in Luke chapter 4, and they're already trying to kill Jesus. And then he keeps on going. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' methods here can be seen so clearly. And to be honest with you guys, it challenges my heart to the core. Because you think about the company that Jesus kept. You know how some people have the phrases of, my Jesus is a rock star. My Jesus is um, the son of God. I heard this one. 
My Jesus doesn't know how to keep good company. Because Jesus was constantly rubbing shoulders with people who, in my pride, I don't like to rub shoulders with. He was constantly willing to spend time and energy and be patient with the prisoners, with the blind, with the oppressed. He was willing, he was looking for that one person that was sitting in the back of the room, beating his chest, could even look up to heaven. That's who Jesus went to look for. You know, if you think about it, when he had dinner or lunch with Zacchaeus, Jesus was coming into town and he sees this short little guy in a tree. And he's like, I'm going to lunch with you. And what's everybody do? It's like, why is he going to eat with him? He's short. He's a tax collector. Nobody likes him. Jesus found that one. It challenges my humility to the core because it was just so shocking. He went after the person that we don't like to go after. Jesus led with cross power. He chose to spend his time with messed up people, not dressed up people. Jesus loves messed up people. I mean, look around. Just look at the person next to you and say, you're messed up and I'm messed up. Just tell that person. We're all messed up. If you have a hard time admitting that, see point number one. Jesus was accused of spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. He was accused of spending his time with the poor and the needy. He was the ultimate example of being in this world, but not of this world. And here's the, the point that I want you guys to run home with. The question that I want you to ask yourself with, this is a question I've been wrestling with over the summer, is would I be accused of the same things Jesus was accused of? Would I be accused of spending my time the way Jesus spent his time, of saying the things Jesus said, of living my life the way Jesus lived his life? Because to be a disciple of his, to be a follower of his, that's what it means. Jesus was constantly rubbing shoulders with people that I think we try to move away from. He was rubbing, he was sitting next to the stinky guy on the bus. He was making friends and serving the grouchy neighbor. He was eating lunch with the kid in your class that no one wants to eat lunch with. Jesus' life, his words were just shocking. It turned this world upside down. He didn't cheapen the message. His standard is high and his grace is overflowing. His love is deep and is sacrificial. Jesus' words brought life. They were challenging, shocking at times, but they brought life. His life on this earth brought forgiveness. 
and his forgiveness gives us the motivation that we need to live a life worthy of the calling that he's called us to. Shocking statements and all. Now, as we leave here this morning, I want to challenge the church when you're reading Jesus's words. Don't just glaze over them. Take them seriously. Get help when you're studying them to see what he's really saying. Let's be motivated by love to follow this amazing and shocking Savior, Jesus Christ. Please stand with me as we close in one final song.